It's almost a week after midterms, and while a lot of you, myself included, are disappointed in the pink splash we got, instead of a red wave, all is not lost, and we've still got a whole heck of a lot of work to do. Unless Joe destroys and or gives away our entire country, which is not out of the realm of possibility, by the way, in the next two years, the race for 2024 starts now. In just a few minutes, I'll be joined by Corey Lewandowski for all the inside information on what we expect will be a big announcement from Trump tomorrow, so stay tuned. But first, it's six days after the midterms. It took way too long to count ballots. We missed a majority in the Senate. We barely have a majority in the House. And we're likely only a day away from Donald Trump announcing his run for president, which is almost sure to fracture our party pretty much down the middle. Oh, and Joe Biden is still our president. So, yeah, things aren't necessarily great. I'm not going to lie to you. But there's a silver lining here. I know there is somewhere, and I'll let you know when I find it. But in all seriousness, though, as insanely frustrating as this election was, and the counting process in particular, think about it this way. Those elections were so close that at one point on Saturday morning, just over 850 votes separated Laxalt and Masto in Nevada. So for those of you who probably since 2020 have felt jaded, slighted, and like your vote didn't count for anything, well, guess what? It does. It matters. Each and every single vote matters. And so do these next two years. Each and every single day is going to matter. What we learned, or at least what we should have in these midterm elections, is that the American people need to be given more to vote on and for than just everything currently sucking, which it still does. Going into the election, over 75% of Americans were unhappy with the direction of the country, but a lot of them voted to keep Democrats in charge anyway. And what's worse, most of the incumbent governors who pushed COVID lockdown tyranny, like Gretchen Whitmer in Michigan, Hochul in New York, Gavin in California, and more, were reelected. I said it last week and I'll say it again, the Republican Party at large really sucks at messaging. And we need to not only own that, we need to fix it. Because it wasn't enough to say, look around, we're at the threshold of hell, voters. We didn't put forth solutions that were easy to understand. Like, can any of you name one bill Republicans put forward in the last two years? Yeah, me neither. Hell, the Democrats put through a climate change bill and called it the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act and another climate change and spending bill and called it Inflation Reduction and we can't even put forward an honest one with a name people can remember? Come on, man. We've got our work cut out for us, but the good thing is we are Republicans and we aren't scared of work. Up next, it's the announcement the mainstream media, the Democrats, and half of the Republican Party have been waiting for, and word is, it's coming tomorrow. Will it be Trump 2024? I've got the one and only Corey Lewandowski on deck with all the mega tea, and you don't want to miss it. That's next. What's up, everyone? It's Nick Wright, and I got something exciting to talk to you about today. Angie your ultimate destination for getting all your jobs done well. Now, Angie isn't just your average home services marketplace. It's a game changer with over 150 million homeowners served and a network of over 200,000 skilled pros. Angie has experience and expertise to tackle any project with ease. Whether you're looking to spruce up your backyard or undergo a major home renovation, Angie's got your back. And their pros are locally based, often running small businesses right in your community. And here's the best part. 
Angie makes the process seamless. From researching and comparing pros to scheduling services at your convenience, Angie's user-friendly platform puts you in control. So why settle for anything less than perfection when it comes to your home? With Angie, you can trust every project will be completed with the utmost care and professionalism. So get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today to discover why homeowners across the nation are turning to Angie to get all their jobs done well. Will Donald Trump run in 2024? All signs point to yes, but the question remains, does he, will he, can he gain the same support from the party he did in 2016 and 2020? Is it still the mega movement or Republicans headhunting for a new leader? Well, who better to ask about it all than the man who's been by Trump's side from the get-go? Joining me now is Republican strategist Corey Lewandowski. Oh, Corey, I have so much to ask you, but I want to jump right on into what we expect is going to be a big 2024 announcement from Donald Trump tomorrow. What information can you spill to us about what we might see or hear coming up? Well, thanks for having me. It looks like President Trump is going to announce tomorrow night, Tuesday at 9 p.m. on a live uh, broadcast that he's going to seek the Republican nomination once again for president of the United States. Uh, I am told from very reliable sources that dozens and dozens of members of Congress will be down there by his side, ready to support him to show that um, they believe that he is the right leader for the party. Now, that said, Tommy, Look, these elections last a long time. If you remember in 2015, Donald Trump came down that escalator in June and the first primary debate was until uh, August. But so we've got a long way to go in this process. I think when Donald Trump announces tomorrow, he's clearly the front runner in this race and he's going to challenge anybody else who's thinking about running to come into the arena and take a shot. Oh, we know he's not going to back away from a fight. I mean, he will take on anybody and everybody from any party, from any affiliation. We know that about Donald Trump, and he will come in guns blazing and out the gate swinging. But there's been a lot of talk, especially after midterms, a lot of rumblings within the Republican Party, both in the media, in Congress, strategists, elsewhere that have said, Now's the time to move away from Donald Trump. The party is seeking something else. There's been a lot of discussion about DeSantis taking his position as head of the movement. Now, as somebody who's been in this and in the trenches of all this, what do you think about that, honestly? Do you think that the Republican Party, the American people that were so excited about Trump in the previous two elections, do they have that same fire in their belly for Trump 2024? Well, look, I think the real question is, you know, what what role, what leadership role do the Republican National Committee have in the in these elections? You know, historically speaking, the party in power lost 63 and 54 seats the last time a Democrat ran in their midterm elections. This time, not only did the Republicans not make gains in the U.S. Senate, it's very likely we're going to lose seats in the U.S. Senate. Will we have a slim majority in the House? Yes. But the Republican Party picked up exactly one governor's race in America this cycle. Uh, that's the state of Nevada where we finally defeated an incumbent. So I have to look at the overall picture. And I know the media wants to say Donald Trump was on the ballot in 2022, uh, but he wasn't on the ballot. He was on the ballot in 16. He was on the ballot in 20. But in 2022, this election was a referendum on the Biden administration and the leadership of the Republican Party. And I think what we found is that we lacked leadership at the National Committee to help people win. We need somebody who knows how to win elections to be running our campaign arms, 
the RNC, the NRCC, the NRSC. And if we do that, our strength is by bringing those people together, whether Donald Trump is the Republican nominee, Ron DeSantis is the nominee, or maybe just maybe it's someone completely different that we haven't thought of just yet. I think what's interesting is something important that you brought up because especially the leftist mainstream media, they want everyone to believe that this was not a referendum on Biden. It was a referendum on Donald Trump, who was not on the ticket. Of course, we know that he had some notable endorsements that maybe didn't quite work out. A couple of them did. Several of them did not. But you're right. The thing that I think Republicans messed up so royally in these midterm elections is unlike Donald Trump, who has always had a very crystal clear message, Republicans really didn't have one. It was everything sucks. Biden sucks. Biden has dementia. John Fetterman is a mess. But it really wasn't anything about what we were going to do. When Donald Trump came down that escalator in 2015, he said, we're going to build the wall. We have stupid people in charge making our deals and negotiating. He said, we're going to drill more, baby, drill, frack, baby, frack. He said, this is what we're going to do. Republicans have just said, Joe Biden is a mess. Yeah, anybody with eyes and ears can tell that. But what are Republicans going to do? So all this blame on Donald Trump for the midterms, I think, is misplaced. And it also frustrates me. But there's a lot of people, too, that are very unhappy with Republican leadership. That's not mega leadership. That's not Trump leadership. That's the McConnells and the McCarthy's of this party that people are, quite frankly, sick of. Is there going to be a world in the next two years where we move away from them? Or do they have such a stranglehold in this party that it's going to be impossible? Well, Tommy, what have we seen in the U.S. Senate races? We saw Mitch McConnell and the Senate Leadership Fund take enormous amounts of money away from guys like Blake Masters and Adam Laxall, and they stuck it into a race in Alaska, where by every conceivable measure, we knew a Republican was going to win that race. Why did they do that? Because the majority was never about being a Republican majority. It was about being a Mitch McConnell majority. And if that's where Mitch McConnell's priorities are, which is to make sure he retains power, that is the definition of the swamp. That is everything that people were against in 2016 when Donald ran, Donald Trump ran. It's everything that people were against in, in 2020 when President Trump ran again. People are tired of politics as usual. The U.S. Senate is not supposed to be the deliberative body where you spend 42 years and you leave in a pine box. You have to give people new opportunities. And the fact that we spent millions upon millions of dollars holding a seat that we knew Republicans were going to hold, as opposed to being on the offense, I put that blame squarely on Mitch McConnell. You know, they want to blame Rick Scott. They want to blame Donald Trump. Look in the mirror for a change and say, what did we do wrong? Look, there was a race in my home state of New Hampshire where I called the NRCC. I said, put just a little bit of money in, just a little bit of resources and we can win. Instead, they're out playing in districts where they knew we couldn't win. And what happened? New Hampshire lost two congressional seats. They lost a U.S. Senate seat. And it looks right like right now that if Kevin Majority is the next Speaker of the House, he will do so with a very, very slim majority where we should have probably won 30, 40, 50, maybe even 60 seats in the midterms. Talking about the money there, because I think it's an important thing. And, you know, McConnell, I'm no McConnell advocate. And quite frankly, I don't think anybody gets excited about him. I don't think he has any merch <laughs> like a, a mega hat. You know, people are just not excited about Mitch McConnell. They're just not. They never have been. They never will be. I'm certainly not. I think we need new leadership. But to that point, you know, Donald Trump had a pretty big war chest and a lot of Pundits are saying maybe Donald Trump should have given a little bit more money to some of the candidates. Maybe that would have been helpful instead of saving that all for himself and his reelection bid. What do you say to that? Because it's a fair criticism. Look, it's an honest criticism. But look, you can't have it just one way. And, you know, I know Ron DeSantis was running for reelection. He raised two hundred million dollars, has 70 million dollars in his bank account. 
Could Ron have given more money to candidates? Of course they could. Greg Abbott, I think the I think the Republican Governors Association gave Governor Abbott something north of $20 million for that re-election, and he raised $125 million. Could some of that money been used to go and win other races like Maine or Kansas, uh, where we could have had Republican pickups? Probably. Look, we can Monday morning quarterback this all the time, but to blame Donald Trump because he didn't spend enough money out of the money he's raised to help other candidates, I think is is a media narrative that just doesn't hold water. Who was on the campaign trail more in these states going out and doing rallies and making sure the base was excited than Donald Trump? It wasn't Mitch McConnell. It wasn't Kevin McCarthy. Look, Donald Trump was in Ohio the night before the election helping J.D. Vance. J.D. Vance won by double digits. Right. Donald Trump went out and endorsed, you know, Oz. And, and the truth is, in the in the Pennsylvania Senate race, Tommy, what happens, 40 percent of the people in that state voted before that one U.S. Senate debate where Fetterman had to read the questions and couldn't do that even properly. And then the media decided they were going to become neurosurgeons and decide that, no, Fetterman is perfectly capable of being in the U.S. Senate. He just can't read, <laughs> write or speak. But his mind works perfectly. I mean, it's amazing how they can diagnose somebody off of watching him in one debate. When it comes to Joe Biden, they say, oh, no, everything's fine. You know, this is the double standard I think people are tired of. I do think what we're seeing around this country is in places like Texas, where Republicans are winning in historically Democrat districts, people want a change. But I agree with your point. You have to be for something. And simply being against Joe Biden and Chuck Schumer and AOC and Nancy Pelosi is not enough to put the country in a new direction. Put your platform out. Let's have an honest debate about it. and Let the people decide. And by the way, let's have one day to vote. Right. No, I, I agree with that. And I'm going to talk about actual election strategy in a minute. But just to go back and kind of finish up this Trump conversation, I'll tell you this. I think Donald Trump, if he was currently our president, our country would be doing much better than it is. I mean, there is no question about it. I wish he was reelected. I put everything that I had into that 2020 reelection for Donald Trump. I miss him dearly. I still think he is not only the figurehead, but he is the leader of this party because he does have a message. He always comes out swinging. But I will say this. What I'm worried about if Trump runs for 2024, which we expect he's going to, I worry that he's going to make it more about his vendetta against what happened in 2020 than he is about the issues. And it's the issues that he won on. It's the issues that propelled him into office and that made this country so successful when he was in office. So that is my concern. That is my worry. And conversations that you've had with him and those close to him, what do you think, if you were to read the tea leaves, we're going to see out of a candidate Trump 2024? I hope, and if it's true, it'll be a successful campaign. The 2024 campaign looks a lot more like 2016 than it did 2020. You know, the 2020 campaign had thousands of people employed on it. It was a big blow to bureaucracy. Everybody had titles and was disappearing for weeks and months on end because they didn't really understand or care what was at stake. The 2016 was a very small, you know, group of kind of a band of brothers. I called it the misfit toys is what we were. Why? Because all we did, we were a meritocracy. It didn't matter if you were the campaign manager, you went and got the McDonald's hamburger, or if you were the press secretary, you did whatever it took. That's what it takes to win a presidential campaign. And if Donald Trump re-employs the 2016 strategy, you fly around on your airplane, you talk about what your message is, you keep it small and lean and efficient and fast, you can respond. When you build an operation like they did in 2020, where thousands of people are employed, basically means nobody's in charge. And the grift and the corruption and the graft that went on there was unparalleled. And, you know, it's a billion dollar operation to run a presidential campaign these days. A lot of consultants can make a lot of money. I'm proud to say I didn't get paid one dime in 2020. And the only money I get ever paid in 2016 was my salary as the 
campaign manager. You go back to that model and you're in it for the right reasons, he can be successful. Oh, I think so, too. I think that the policies are there, and I think he is a great leader. It's getting through all the BS that's the problem. And another thing that I'm worried about is that there are a lot of people that, however unfair it is, however ridiculous that it is, especially coming out of an entire summer of riots, January 6th, January 6th, January 6th, they try and try to resurrect this. They put this at the tip of everybody's tongue. We know that the president, when he does deliver a speech, that's what he's got to talk about is the insurrection. How much of a problem is that going to be? for a Trump 2024 campaign? Realistically, be honest with me. It's a real issue, Tommy, because you have to remember, Donald Trump is not just fighting Joe Biden or Gavin Newsom or Kamala Harris, whoever the Democratic nominee is, he's fighting the mainstream media every single day. And the narrative that Donald Trump uh, encouraged, supported, condoned this insurrection is what the media wants to tell you every day. They want to tell you that because it fits the narrative that Donald Trump is not fit for office. You know, what they don't want to tell you is all the great things that President Trump did when he was in office, how our military became stronger, how our allies respected us and how our enemies feared us. They don't want to talk about the, the clear differences between a Trump administration and a Biden administration when it comes to troop withdrawal, when it comes to morale, when it comes to supporting the people who are here in our country first. You know, I, I, I have empathy, I guess, for the people of Ukraine, but I don't have empathy when my tax dollars to the tune of what is now what, $20 billion has been sent overseas? And I, you know, I turn on my phone and I look and we've got 500 shooting victims in the city of Philadelphia uh, on a yearly basis. I mean, we need to do something here so that we're stopping the illegal drugs and border crossing so that we're protecting Americans. That's what Donald Trump talked about. The media calls him a racist and a misogynist and a bigot. The truth is, Donald Trump's an equal opportunity hater. He hates everybody the same. He hates me the same as he hates you as he hates an African-American or an Asian-American or, you know, it doesn't matter. I've seen it firsthand. So putting this notion together of America first should not be a negative. It should be, why can't we take care of the people in Chicago and in Philadelphia and in New York City and take care of our homeless veterans? You know, that shouldn't be a dirty word. And why are we taking care of the rest of the world before we take care of ourselves? Because the media wants to do that and the media wants to tell you that the January 6th matter is the only thing that Donald Trump should ever be judged on for the rest of his life, whether it's true or not. We'll leave that to the people to decide. I think what took place that day was shameful. There's been clearly swift and uh, very lengthy prison sentences that have gone to some of those things. But there's been a two-tier justice system in this country, Tommy. We've seen what happens when you marshal Black Lives Matter and you don't get penalized. You light police stations on fire and you kill people. And there seems to be a complete disregard for the law, or at least the media doesn't seem to cover it. But when a conservative does something, uh, they're up in arms for days about it. That's what really the presidential race is going to be about, is continuing to call out members of the mainstream media who are simply extensions of the Democratic Party. They know it. They just don't want to admit it. No, I agree with you. And I think it's entirely unfair where they don't want to focus on his accomplishments. I think that's the frustration that I still have when I look at this, because I'm still very conflicted, if I'm to be honest. You know, they write a bunch of stories about me that I'm off the Trump train. That is not that is not true whatsoever. If Trump runs and he is our nominee in 2024, I will go harder for him than I ever have before in 2016 or 2020. You will see me out there with mega hats blazing. I'll tell you that much. But I just hope if he's ever listening and if I can communicate any message to him, especially from the young person perspective, it's this. Please just talk about what you're going to do to get this country back on track because we trust you to do it. We know you can do it because we've seen you do it. Just let everything else go. Let sleepy dogs lie and move on and let's save the country. 
Last question I have for you, though. There's a lot of Americans that are still very frustrated with our election system. They're very frustrated by what they're seeing in Arizona. A lot of people feel disenfranchised. It really doesn't matter if they are or they're not. They feel that way. What can we do as Republicans to figure out our election strategy better because we have not mastered how to get out our early vote. We have not mastered what they do with their ballot harvesting, their this, their that. They've mastered the art of uh, mass mail-in voting and they've codified COVID policies and it's worked against us. What can we do heading into the next election to try to at least combat that somewhat? Because even if we have the best candidate, we have DeSantis, we have Trump, we have somebody, it doesn't matter. If we don't fix this strategy, we're still going to lose. Tommy, our party has invested hundreds of millions of dollars through the Republican National Committee to try and combat this. And they haven't done a very good job, very candidly. You know, what, never do we see these elections that, that trickle on now for six days turning out for Republicans, right? What we always see is these massive leads for Republicans. Adam Laxall, a great friend of mine in Nevada, all of a sudden, the race is over five days later because they're still counting. Blake Masters in Arizona, we're still waiting on Kerry Lake's results for a race that most polls indicated that she was going to win by a fairly substantial margin, four or five points. We need to do a better job. And if ballot harvesting and mail-in ballot is the system that we are stuck to in each of the respective states, then we better get our acts together. Because this notion that we can simply rely on Election Day to show up and vote and we're going to be successful is out the window. My home state of New Hampshire does not have absentee ballots. It doesn't have same day. Right. It does have same day registration. But you must show up and vote on Election Day, except on very, very few circumstances. That's how the system was supposed to work. It's not election week. It's not election month. It's not election two months. And when you see things like Fetterman and Oz debate and 40 percent of the people made their decision before that debate transpired, we are doing a disservice to the people. We need to do better. If it's about ballot harvesting, we better get our act together. If it's about communicating for six or seven or eight weeks at a time ahead of time, if we don't do that, we will be permanently in the minority. No, I agree. That is what's most frustrating to me is that we still want to operate like we're in 1992 and we're in 2022 and Republicans are going to need to play the game because it's not enough for us just to feel jaded and be upset and hate the way these elections are run and hate mass mail-in voting because in a lot of places it's here to stay. We don't want to federalize elections. That's even worse. So we have to rely on these states to do a better job and we hope that they can put some election integrity measures in place. Unfortunately, now it doesn't look like we have a lot of the leadership that's going to do it, but we're going to have to get a better strategy no matter who is our candidate on that ballot in 2024. But uh, are you headed to, to Mar-a-Lago? Will you be there for the big announcement tomorrow? Well, I'm in Florida. I don't want to give away my travel schedule, but I'll tell you, I'm in Florida. I flew down this morning. It's a beautiful place. Uh, I know why people continue to move here. This is the place to be this week, Tommy. Look, I can tell you that uh, there's going to be a big turnout tomorrow night at Mar-a-Lago. Uh, the president's speech, from what I am told, I have not seen it is uh, very specific about what he does want to accomplish, to your points, and not relitigating what has happened in the past. Uh, look, the president tends to go off prompter sometimes, but I think what people know is that he speaks directly from the heart, and I think people like that. They like the fight in him, and he's ready to bring that fight back to the American people because he wants to see this country great again. There's some unfinished business, and if Trump finishes it or DeSantis finishes it or someone else finishes it, the MAGA movement is alive and well, and we have a lot of Donald Trump to thank for that. And we're as fired up as ever. So thank you for spending so much time with me. And uh, hey, the race for 2024, it starts now. So we better get to work. Thank you so much for being with me, Corey. Thank you. All right. Still ahead, a 14-year-old student athlete and her coach father were both suspended after objections to a trans bio male in the girls' locker room. And they join me next. 
Vermont high school student-athlete Blake Allen told school officials she felt uncomfortable with a trans bio-male using the girls' locker room. And what did she get? Suspended. But she wasn't the only one. When her dad spoke up defending his daughter, he was also suspended from his position as the middle school soccer coach. But instead of just getting mad, this father-daughter duo is getting even. They're suing the school and sending the message loud and clear. They will not be silenced. Joining me now is 14-year-old student-athlete Blake Allen, her father Travis Allen, and their ADF senior counsel, Phil Seckler. Thank you all so much for being with me. I have a wonderful trio of freedom and self-expression and standing up doing the right thing. So I appreciate you guys taking the time. Thank you. So, Blake, I want to start with you. For those that aren't familiar with the story, and we've discussed it on Fox News at length. I even discussed it, I don't number it, a few weeks back. But tell my audience what happened that prompted this whole scandal to be kicked off in the first place. I was in the locker room with a bunch of other teammates getting ready for a volleyball game. And a trans student walked in, and I went to tell the school officials and our principals that it made me uncomfortable and that a trans student shouldn't be allowed in our locker room. And they shut me down and said there was nothing they could do about it. And when I was discussing it with a friend, um, I got reported for harassing the trans student and then got suspended. Yeah, that's incredible to me that you as a young lady cannot go to your school officials, people that should be advocating for all students, by the way, and voice a very real concern. You know, I think what's most frustrating is this era we've entered into that young women don't seem to have a voice anymore. And yet we've got all these simultaneous movements like the Me Too movement and Believe All Women. But when it comes to this issue, it seems like those things, those women's rights issues, those classic feminist issues just don't seem to matter. So I want to turn to your dad. You know, when your daughter came home and she told you what had happened, not only that she was suspended for it and she had repercussions for it, but that she felt uncomfortable. What was your response as a father? I was very upset. I mean, I wanted to do what any father wants to do and go down and to the school and and protect her. Um, we we didn't know what to do, in all honesty. It's a, a difficult situation. And Blake, I want to ask you about this one as well, because, you know, you're a young lady. Uh, as we know, this is a, a culture of diversity that's happening, especially in our schools. A lot of things are changing. A lot of things that I never had to deal with when I was in school are things that you have to deal with on a daily basis now, not knowing what's politically correct, what you can say, what you can't say, whose feelings can be expressed and whose feelings have to be suppressed. But when this all happened, were there other teammates or classmates of yours that felt the same way that you did that were more hesitant to speak up? Um, yeah, a few of the teammates in the locker room with me asked the trans student to leave originally, and the trans student didn't. But a lot of people are telling me that they support me, but they can't speak out because they don't want the backlash or they don't want to get suspended like me. And they're just trying to lay low. What's incredible to me is that you, they actually went so far as to suspend you. And you said that their reasoning was that you were you were bullying this trans student. That's the justification that they gave you? Yes. Simply for saying that you felt uncomfortable as a young lady changing in front of somebody who is a biological male. They suspend you for that. You got the consequences for that, for simply voicing an uncomfortability that many young women would feel the exact same way about. So I want to go to the legal perspective on this. I, I know that, you know, you were suspended. I think that was restored. But your dad, of course, still suspended. What at what point did you guys decide this is a case that we need to take legal action on because we have a real case in front of us that can be won? So we filed a lawsuit a week after uh, we heard that uh, the suspension was in place. 
Uh, and within a few hours, the school lifted the discipline uh, that they had imposed on Blake. So what is the goal of this lawsuit in this case? What are you hoping to win? What are you hoping the message will be, the moral of the story, if all this goes the way that you want it to? Yeah, so the message has to be just what you said, Tommy. Women have to have a voice. They have to be able to speak up and they have to be able to express themselves when they don't feel safe and they don't feel comfortable. So we would like the court to make clear that Blake and Travis have a First Amendment right to say a biological male shouldn't be in the girls' locker room uh, to call a male a male and to express their opinions on this very important issue. So what's next? Yeah, so we're going to get into discovery and, you know, learning more information about the school's reasoning. But it's pretty clear that they disciplined Blake because she called a male a male and because she objected to a biological male being in the girls' locker room. Uh, and the same thing with Travis. So we will be going forward asking for a ruling uh, that makes clear that both Travis and Blake have a First Amendment right to express their opinion. Blake, I want to go back to you. You know, what is your status now in school? I mean, you're, you're a young woman. Obviously, now you're suing the schools, so that puts you in a really interesting spot. But what's it like for you on a day-to-day -day basis? What kind of feedback are you getting, backlash support? What has it been like? Everyone at school, they're, they like what I'm doing. They're happy that someone's speaking out about it because everyone thinks it's wrong. And it's not awkward with the principals. I don't have to talk to them anymore. I used to have to be in the principal's office for like an hour a day of them talking to me. And it's just a lot. Yeah, I can only imagine what that's like to deal with. And I want to go to your dad, Travis. Let me know, too, from a perspective as a parent, because there's a lot of parents that are in your position that, you know, they don't have the intestinal fortitude to speak out and speak up, though they would like to. What is your message to other parents out there that are trying to decide if they want to say something, if they want to stand up? They need to stand up. Uh, it's certainly not been an easy road. We've we've received lots of support, but we've also received some hate mail, hate messages. So it's not easy. We've lost friends, but we know we're doing the right thing. So we're going to continue moving, moving forward. And I hope other parents will do the same. What do you think that the domino effect is of not only your lawsuit, but the way that this is in our country right now, with this becoming more and more of an issue, whether it's biological males competing in women's sports or them being in the locker room or in the bathroom? Where do you think that we are headed from here? And from a legal perspective, is there anything that concerned citizens and concerned parents can do to stop this trend? Yeah, I think it is stand up, just as Travis said, Tommy. Um, the First Amendment is strong. The courts are strong. They're kind of our last bastion of hope. And so parents should understand there's a constitution in place for a reason. It gives them rights, rights of free expression, free speech, and those rights should be protected and they're worth fighting for. So I think it's important for everyone to really stand up when they feel the bullies of modern orthodoxy are trying to silence their own opinions. So there's a couple of elements here that I think are at play. One is the First Amendment, Blake being able to say, hey, this makes me feel uncomfortable, which is her right as an American, her right as a human being, and that should be honored and that should be celebrated furthermore. But then there's another element to it here is the actual safety issue. I know that that's not something that people really want to talk about, but it's a safety issue when you have young biological males and young biological females expected to undress next to each other in a locker room, in a bathroom. There's another element here, too, besides just saying, hey, I'm not OK with this. Is there anything that can legally be done 
in the context of this Biden administration that has already voiced such support for this diversity in the locker rooms that can be done to stop it for safety purposes? Yeah, I think on a legal uh, level, you're going to see challenges to the idea that males and females should share locker rooms for exactly the reason you say. Uh, There was a big decision coming out of Texas on Friday that kind of uh, supported the distinction between biological males and biological females and rejected an argument that Title IX requires them to be treated the same. So I think there's going to be more happening in the courts uh, to protect women. I'm hopeful. Blake, I want to turn my last question to you because it's incredible what you've been able to do standing up. Uh, I know it's not easy. You know, I've, I've been in the spotlight at a young age as well, not nearly as young as you, but I know what it feels like to stand up for something and get a lot of hate and get a lot of backlash. Everybody knows your name. Everybody's seen your story. Uh, you're in a liberal state, so I'm sure that it's not always easy. But what is your message to other young people out there that have a message that they want to get out, but maybe they're a little too afraid to do so? Always speak out because there could be a change, and that's what matters the most. I think we're going to see a lot of changes, but it's going to come from people like you who are willing to take the brunt of it. And it's going to be you that are kicking the doors open that are going to make big changes. So I want to thank all three of you for standing up, for fighting the good fight, and we'll be following this case. And we certainly hope that you're victorious at the end of it. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys. Thank you. All right. Up next, there was a lot of disappointment to go around last week, but it's the bigger picture that concerns me most. And my final thoughts are next. Last week wasn't just a disappointment because we didn't get the red wave or win big majorities. Rather, it's the message those losses sent to the Democrats that has me most concerned. It's time for Final Thoughts, powered by Four Patriots. The Democrats are celebrating the fact we never got the red wave even they thought was coming. But let's get one thing straight. It wasn't a blue wave either. The American people are still overwhelmingly pissed at the state of our economy, gas prices, inflation, and crime. The American people still don't like Joe Biden or Kamala, and they still have low confidence in Congress. Yet, they still voted Democrat. Democrats didn't have the day or week of reckoning they and their BS policies deserved. They should have been shellacked, walloped, crushed, destroyed, and obliterated at the ballot box, but they weren't. So now what? Now Democrats at large have no reason to change their policies, no reason to increase domestic energy production, no reason to get rid of no cash bail and other felon coddling policies, no reason to lower taxes or secure our border or work to fix a damn thing they've destroyed. In fact, Now they'll only double down and triple down on those horrible policies. What in the next two years do you intend to do differently uh, to change people's uh, opinion of the direction of the country, particularly as you contemplate a run for president in 2024? Nothing, because they're just finding out what we're doing. And that's what angers, frustrates me, and honestly saddens me the most. Americans are going to get no relief now, none. The Democrats, Joe, Nancy, Schumer, Hochul, Newsom, Whitmer, none of them are going to change a damn thing. Hell, Hochul is so shameless she's dancing around like an idiot while the kids around her are still forcibly masked. Is this a joke? And if you thought gas prices were bad before the midterms, wait until Joe and friends let them go full bore now that they don't have an election in front of them. He's already on the world stage promising more climate change policy. Give him another six months and he'll be taxing cow farts. Just wait. 
This whole country is going to suffer for the next two years because we fail to show Democrats their agenda is a suicide mission for this country. And that is what bothers me the most. And crime? It's only going to get worse. The thug and felon coddling, police demonizing, lawless, free-for-all extravaganza is here to stay because we didn't vote out the people who created it. Hell, even cheered it on. It's so damn disappointing, not just because Republicans lost or underperformed, but more so because now the whole country suffers. We all lose. And here's the hard truth. The Democrats used COVID to forever change our elections. Two months of early voting, mass mail-in voting, ballot harvesting, the whole nine yards, it's all here to stay. And as long as Republicans sit back and bury our heads in the sand about it, we will keep losing. If we don't figure out how to work the system like the Democrats work the system, we will lose. We keep refusing to fight the culture war, we will lose. We keep saying we want an all-out ban on abortion, we will lose. It's 2022 and our party is still trying to campaign and run our elections like it's 1992. I keep saying it because it's true. We have two years to get our you-know-what together. We can't keep coming to the table with only facts and good intentions. And I can tell you this, I will do everything in my power with every eyeball I have on this show and every follower I have on social media, even the ones that hate me, to turn the tide and turn it red. So game, set, match. Those are my final thoughts. Be sure to catch the entire show as well as exclusive content on Outkick.com. From Nashville, God bless and take care.